0: This episode of Always Take Notes is supported by Clean Prose, London's first co-working space designed specifically for writers.
1: Based over 3 stories in Shoreditch in the east of the city, Clean Prose's mission is to provide writers of all stripes, from novelists to playwrights, with a space and a community designed especially for them.
0: To foster strong connections, Clean Prose offers a professional network that many writers miss when they work alone at home, at a library, or in a noisy cafe.
1: The ground floor is an event space, offering workshops, talks from experts and book launchers.
0: The first floor is an open-plan common room. It is the space for writers to connect, collaborate, drink coffee and develop their professional networks within the publishing, TV, film and other creative industries.
1: The second floor is a totally quiet space in which to concentrate and write, with private desks, lockers and an extensive book collection.
0: To find out more, go to cleanprose.co.uk. Always take notes, listeners, are eligible for a five-day pass to CleanPros. To redeem this offer, please email right at cleanpros.co.uk with the subject line ATN-Welcome5.
1: Hello, it's us again. In this episode, Rachel and I spoke with Jay Rayner, who is the restaurant critic of The Observer.
0: We talked about why, in his view, there's no such thing as food writing, his lesser-known stint as a novelist, and his famous hatchet job of a Michelin-starred restaurant in Paris.
1: It's a great episode, and we hope you enjoy it. Jay, thank you so much for uh, coming on Always Take Notes. I wanted to start by um, asking about this, this pro-forma letter that you sent us, which is something that you give to... To people who get in touch with you or, or aspirant food writers And this this key missive you have That there's no such thing as food writing Or if I'm phrasing that wrong But could you tell me about the, that idea
2: uh, Okay, so the basis of the letter is over, I've been the restaurant critic for The Observe for 20 years and, um, and I do come from a general journalism background And I get endless emails from people saying I like food and therefore I'd like your job And we can unpick the idea of the job Of what it is I want to be a food writer, and I am absolutely intent on the fact that there is no such thing as food writing. There is only writing that happens to be about food. There is nothing specific to writing journalism which has a food content. It is the same as any other journalism. Exactly the same rules apply. Um, and if you start thinking about it in a different way, you're going to start using words like mouthwatering watering and sumptuous, and then where will you be? So I'm... <laughs> uh, I mean, I I say it in a comic way, but, you know, the first thing I try to say to people is it's not about the food. It's about the writing. And if you're coming at this thinking, ooh, I like my dinner, and, and you fancy yourself peering over a plate of food, like I sometimes do on MasterChef with a furrowed brow, and adjectives are coming to mind, and you think you're, you know... the searing, in, you have the searing instincts of Anton Ego of Ratatouille. It's all going to win badly.
0: In your column from March uh, 2019 where you reflected on 20 years of uh, being a food critic, you said... Yeah,
2: that was a grand thing to do, wasn't it? They made me, just so you know. <laughs> it wasn't my idea.
0: You said that it's the story that counts um, when you're writing about food often. How do you go about constructing a story?
2: Well, th- th- that's the point. I teach a class, actually. It's a one-off class um, and it's on... Officially, it's on column writing, um, and the the point is, how do you write about the same subject week in, week out? Because my subject is a table, a chair, a plate of food, and that's about it. Um, and what I say is, you must try and work out what the story is here, because you are not going to get eleven hundred words out of the lamb was overcooked and the fish was rare. Um, you're going to have to look at what is the essential essence of this experience and so it can be anything through to the joy of accidents happy accidents in falling into a restaurant or price or location or gentrification or crockery or you know the importance of a good maitre d you every if you're any good at this gig uh writing and i don't mean this as being a a restaurant if you're any good as a writer you should be able to identify what that thing is and then work that into a glorious few paragraphs <laughs> that is going to keep the reader reading.
1: Can we roll back to the, you know, the beginning of your career? Um, My so-called career. Your so-called career and your, your rise, resistible rise to power. Mm. Um, you know, student journalism and then early stages beyond that. Had you, was it always something you were keen to do?
2: All right. So the Potter biography. Um, up to the age of 14, I thought I was going to be an actor. Um, and then I realized that a talent for remembering lines and showing off was not the same as being an actor. Um, I don't think there's any secret that my mother was a very well-known journalist and broadcaster, and that meant that a lot of newspapers came into the house every morning. I think maybe she didn't want to talk to us over breakfast, so we were all given a paper to read, and I quickly discovered that this was interesting what was going on inside these newspapers um particular column dermot per america it was a miscellany column of you know stuff around america and i thought how much fun that not only did you get to be in america how glamorous um but find all this stuff out and i specifically chose my uh university in leeds because it had the biggest student newspaper in the country uh, with a f- an editorship that was a full-time job and that you had to be elected to Um, partly because I wanted to get into student journalism and partly because in my very grand way I thought right I'll go there I'll get elected editor for the year after graduation and then no one can accuse me of getting into journalism through nepotism that was the plan Um, two things to say I precociously did go to Leeds I did get involved in the student paper I did get elected editor that was my first job Um, and it made absolutely no difference whatsoever to the accusations of nepotism, even though my dear mama has been dead almost 10 years. Um, At the end of that time as a student editor, national newspapers at that point were trying to grab readers while they were still students. They thought they could keep them for life. And they were all launching student supplements. And if you knew anything or appeared to about students, you were in. So I was uh, pretty much um, courted by... All of Fleet Street, uh, they were calling us up. I know it's the same was happening to the editor of Mancunian and to Cherwell at Oxford and wherever. Um, and I came down. And my first published piece was in a Independent Student Supplement. Um, I then went to did some time on the Telegraph. I worked my way round to Time Out, and then ended up on the Observer first time round, and. <laughs> The, the mercurial bit is that I went to work on a, the first tabloid section of a nas- national broadsheet, which was called Section 5, and was launched off the back of the property boom. Um, and it had a gossip column. Now, my job was to write the property pieces, and that's what I did. And at the launch party, the editor, whose protégé I was, I think, said, what do you think of our new baby? And I said, it's great, but it's got the worst diary column I've ever read. I was 21 years old. <laughs> and to my surprise, he said, yes, I agree. And two weeks later, he sacked the person who'd been writing that diary column and gave me the job. Um, And so I had the front column of this tabloid section that was going out to the whole of London, which frankly, in those days, and probably still now, meant the entirety of the media, um, to fill with stories. At the time, it felt like it went on endlessly, but in in truth, it was only four months before I quit um, because there was a change of editor and I thought I'd be sacked anyway. But also, it had all happened too quickly. Um, And so I went freelance. I mean, I don't know if this is too much detail for you, but I I went freelance. Um, There was a short period at the Hampstead and Highgate Express as a new sub and theatre critic. But quickly, I established myself as a getter of ideas and stories, which I sold piece by piece by piece um, and moved into long-form feature writing. Um, And when I look back on it at the time, it felt like a gentle progression, but things do when you're very young. Uh, In reality, I think it was really quite quick. I think I got my first. Well, I got my first Guardian section cover about six months after leaving Leeds, and I got my first Weekend Guardian cover about a year after that. So pretty much, that's how it started. But it was about stories.
1: When you were at Leeds, did you overlap with Paul Dacre? How old do you think I
2: am, for God's sake? He's seventy-four. I'm 53. No, I didn't fucking cross over with Paul Taker. <laughs> Though he did edit the same paper. He did, he did edit
1: the yeah. same paper.
2: If you edit that out, I'll
1: be appalled. <laughs> Can we talk about um, what, what was the sort of media scene like in, you know, Fleet Street in the late 80s? The Observer of 1988 compared to the Observer of 20. Well,
2: the, the Observer of 1988 specifically was a booming paper. That was a paper with the circulation uh, closing on a million because neither the Sunday Correspondent nor the Independent on Sunday had launched. Um, In that sense, it was an extremely frothy time. I mean, you know, this was a moment when newspapers were launching. The Independent had launched only three years before, two, three years before, and had become a booming success. Um, And then the Sunday Correspondent, and then the Independent on Sunday. And it it was extremely frothy. It was an extremely interesting time to be a young journalist coming out of university. There were a whole bunch of us in 88 specifically uh jonathan friedland who's columnist on the guardian ian katz now controller of channel four james wood who's now a professor of literature at harvard um there was a guy called jocelyn target who sort of went all the way to deputy editor of the observer by the age of 30 and then popped out the top of journalism three of us won young journalist of the year in a row entrance it was jocelyn first and james and me um David Rowan, who edited Wired, Anne McAlvoy, Matthew Dancona. All of these people emerge at exactly the same time. And looking back on it, it was it was slightly spectacular, actually. I mean, you try to think that your own generation is special.
0: Do you think that raised but the But I, I bar think it possibly bit. was. Mm. Do you think having so many... Having a cohort of young, talented journalists kind of raised the bar a bit?
2: I think we were all competing like mad. Mm. Um Johnny Friedland and I, I don't know if he'll mind me talking about this, but I, I we used to talk... There was an, an essay at the beginning of a volume uh, called New Journalism. I don't know if you remember this book from... By Tom Wolfe, yeah. Yeah, Tom well, It was a collection yeah. of everybody. Yeah, yeah. But, but he they, wrote a forward. But he wrote a forward, an essay, which was called, oh, it was called The Game. Mm. And it was about all these... Feature writers competing with each other. Feature writers competing with each other to see who could write the thing which was as close to fiction mm. as it possibly was. And, but still true. But still true. Um, and I, Johnny and I used to talk about the game. Who, who else out there? Robert Crampton was another one he was a columnist on the Times. Kate Muir. Okay, keep going. I mean, it, it's an extraordinary collection of writers um, who were young and kicking off. And maybe they weren't paying the slightest bit of attention to me. It has to be said, I was the only one who hadn't gone to Oxbridge. Because every single one of the others had, um, yeah, they all had, <laughs> which is extraordinary in itself.
1: What was the? But like, we, we were all
2: paying attention to each other.
1: What was the economic basis of newspapers then? Did they? I mean, did it seem you know the staffing levels, how much money was available, or what kind of? Thing?
2: Already by the late eighties, people were wistfully talking about what it had been like, but that it turned out was only in a particular section of the broadsheet press. Uh, and particularly maybe The Guardian Because, uh, you know, The Guardian Which on and off I've worked for For most of my career Although I've, worked, I've written for literally everyone Apart from the Financial Times and the Daily Star um, Who happily have both written about me <laughs> uh, The Daily Star particularly is quite a good story um, But there was money There was clearly money about And I, you know, I got to experience some of it For three years when I went to work for The Mail on Sunday As a long-form feature writer um, which is an interesting story in itself and actually says a lot about what was going on in newspapers um 93 the mail on sunday felt that they had so penetrated the mid market they wanted to start taking the up market you know the broadsheet market and they tried to come up with a supplement that would do that and they'd failed uh, to come up with anything that worked with advertisers. And so they came and got this wunderkind called Jocelyn Target, one of those others who'd come out at the same time, as, literally the same time. Jocelyn had been deputy editor of Weekend Guardian at 23 and arts editor of The Guardian at 24 and then been managing editor of The Sunday Times, culture, literary section, style at 25. I mean, absurd. And then David English comes and gets this wunderkind and says, here, have a train set. Gives him an enormous budget. And he comes hunting for all us Guardian journalists, me, William Leith, various people like that. And I remember the conversation very well. He said, um, come and write long form for me. You'll write 10 big features a year. And I said, I can't come and write for a Tory rag. I've been on the Guardian. He said, you'll be paid Tory money, but you'll carry on writing Guardian pieces. And he promised that we would be complete defended from the rest of the Mail on Sunday. And so it proved because he reported only to the late David English. And we were behind a line of filing cabinets. This story has very little been told, to we said. We were behind a line of filing cabinets um, and it, on half a floor, the rest of the paper fucking hated us. We were young uh, uh, we, and we were, we were doing it every week. I mean, it was, it was some insane stuff went on. Josh, Josh had a particular love of old magazines and he went and hired up most of the old insight crew from the sunday times murray sale philip knightley these big names and got them writing long form the 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 wordage was really really nice he had a driver john because because of the level he was at within associated he had to have his own daimler and joss to his credit was embarrassed about the daimler and and he didn't like john just sitting around the office doing nothing so if we were sent out on jobs stories got to go and interview someone John will drive you so we were driven around town in Tamers, we have flown business class I remember once sounds being, like
0: a gig <laughs> uh, well I,
2: I wrote if I look back on it, I wrote some ex, mm. some some very strong long form stuff
0: what were some of the features that you wrote? Uh, well a
2: perfect example was um, Diana Princess Diana was getting into landmines and he said I think we should do a big thing about landmines and I said okay how long have I gone he goes oh, six weeks and so I started by going to the Imperial War Museum and asking for a, a tutorial on landmines um, and, and then built it from there. And it was a 6,000-word piece on everything you ever need to know about landmines and the great things that are going on at the moment. I did a big piece. There was an outrageous, outrageous story about horse slashing in Hampshire. Uh, which was a horrible story in itself, but and Josh was very good at this. His idea was that the story would be horrible, but the pictures would be beautiful. These these healthy horses, he loved his horses. In fact, he went to work for Sheikh Naktoum as his marketing manager after journalism. Yeah. But he got a, um, a very famous uh, commercial photographer called Clive Arrowsmith to shoot these almost John Stubbs-like pictures of horses. Um, and I remember being on those shoots where he backlit the winter sky. I mean, it was the
1: most extraordinary thing. Can we talk about the first piece you sent us? So the thing yeah. that won you, the Young Journalist of the Year in the early 90s? About One this, of them, yeah. This, this gun man. Yeah. So how did that... Um, so he was like... A, he published Handgunner magazine? He
2: published a magazine about um, small arms. And he had been responsible for passing over to someone who didn't have a license, a small, a small gun, a, a, you know, handgun. What do I know from guns? Um, which had then been used in a bodyguard training afternoon, which went wrong because there was a live bullet in the in the gun when it should have been a blank and, and, and a man died. Um, I can't remember the name of the opening character. I do always remember that first line, so-and-so died a bodyguard's death. Um, I had a habit, which I developed very early on, of going to a newsagent's on Old Compton Street and buying up A stack of magazines. I mean, I'm talking in those days, 30 quid would buy you Mm. 20, 25 titles. And I would go as random as I possibly could. Um, And I was on the hunt for small stories that everybody else had not seen. Things from niche parts of the world. Um, I remember finding, you know, in Greyhound Star, there was a story about a a dog track in the Welsh Valleys where they had... um, Uh, where it said that they'd lost their gambling license, but dog racing would continue. And I called them up and said, why is this? They said, unemployment is 65% here. These people live for their dogs. If we cancelled it, they'd have nothing. So we're going to carry on. And it was a perfect portrait of unemployment in the valleys. And then I found this one. I think it was in a a small gun magazine. It was a news report of the sort they clearly didn't normally do. And I thought it was a fucking great story. Um, And I went and sat in court in Colchester. and and covered the end of this case and then contacted this weird American guy, Jan Stevenson. Don't even know if he's still alive. Um, But it was, what can I tell you? It's a a classic piece of reporting, but then written through in as engaging a way as I possibly could and, to my delight, Weekend Guardian, in the shape of the then-editor Roger Alton, took two and a half thousand words. It was a good tale. It's a very good tale.
0: The horrifying detail of the four-year-old son who had a had, had a gun, his own gun had a gun before he was named. Yes, <laughs> all of that. So, sort of I mean, it, it, it was
2: also um, you know it could have been just a call report, but there was a much bigger story behind it, and also a snapshot of that libertarian right to uh, you know own guns, mm. hold hold firearms, but set on the, the flatlands of Essex. Um, I think it was at Manningtree which would later become synonymous with a certain sort of Ukipi-type Britain. So, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a cracking tale, that one.
0: How often did that method of kind of scouring stories in, in other publications yield something like that? Was it often a frustrating process, or did you, did you find kind of things had been boiled down into, um, into
2: things There like- were times. Eventually, it was a law of diminishing returns. I think partly it was a law of diminishing returns because my success at that meant that I was starting to get called and offered the stories. Um, so it became less necessary. And maybe that meant my bar rose. Um, I, I did find some absolutely brilliant ones. Sometimes you'd get two or three out of the pile. Sometimes you get one and sometimes you get nothing. It was like I'd also, um, a, a classic habit, I don't even know how you could do it now, was I would go to the Royal Courts of Justice and ask for the Ritz book. And this was a handwritten book into which uh, details of writs had been written. Um, civil cases or libel writs, and you had to have a really good instinct to try and work out what it was and if it caught your you know if it looked interesting you could ask them to pass you the writ because even before they'd revealed it in the press you know if celebrities were suing each other they had to write it in the book and that would you know I'd do it once a month I'd pop into the royal courts of justice and ask to have a look at the book and they had to show you
1: and as your career has developed how have you Woven writing novels, writing books with the the TV work. How how has this all sort of fitted together? And I, people always
2: want it to fit together. Well, one day you do one thing, and the other day you do the other. I'm not I'm not sure it. I mean, uh, you know, I'm not sure it does. I'm. Did you uh, stay freelance? Or? Yes. Um, I will admit that in the early years, and I, I'll I'll sound really bitter and twisted and chippy for a moment. In those very early years on the Guardian. Um, you know, I was I was totally freelance when I won Young Journalist for them, though uh, the other two winners had been put on staff, and I had to be a bit Machiavellian to finally be offered a contract. And I became more and more bitter and twisted about this that they were. Uh, I, I don't. Did I mention that they'd all gone to Oxbridge and I hadn't, and that they'd all been offered staff jobs and I hadn't? Um, but. I, I, And I thought what I needed was a staff job because as a young man, you think, I need security. But then there was a a flip. And I remember it was was around the time I won the award, which was a life-changing award. Um, The amount I I started calculating, you know, that piece was worth that much, that piece was... uh, Oh, hang on. (laughs) This is looking rather good. Um, And then the mail on Sunday came along and all credited the brilliant Jocelyn Target for, you know, taking us all aboard and spending his... How many millions a year that he had, and it was enormous. The man even hired Annie Leibovitz at one point. Um, you know, it was... It, it became clear to me that I didn't need to be on staff and that actually, if I didn't want to be an editor, if I didn't want to follow that editing route, it was better not to be on staff. I wanted a contract. first one of those was with Cosmopolitan magazine as a sex columnist. Sex from the male point of view. Oh, look, they were just funny bits about orgasms. Um, they said they they had no one who could write about that stuff from the male point of view, and I was quite good at a knob gag. Had, so,
0: hadn't you helped your mother sort through her letters yes. as well? Yeah, I had. <laughs> I mean, see, on the one first on the one
2: hand, um, <laughs> my wife and I have been together since I was twenty, and so I, I you know, I don't want to, I don't want to do a sub story, but not a lot of action before, so I basically had to do some of that as reporting. Um, call my friends up but also you know it's all intuitive isn't it uh, it all worked and this is so then I, I did eventually because of the uh young journalist of the year award and the british press awards i got a, a contract from the
1: guardian which i then broke to go to the mail on sunday so a rule of the podcast is you always ask everyone about money and how it interfaces with their, mm. their writing lives i mean hope you were you Kind of financially comfortable from that stage onwards, or you know. So uh, and, and, were, and now, how does your you know say as much as you want about sums, but your, how your income is divided between okay, different streams? Okay, I can talk about that. So uh, just uh, there was a
2: little bit of a slalom at the top. Um, so that when I got that job as a gossip columnist, I remember the editor a chap called Nick Wapshot said, um, "And I'll pay you eighty pounds a day." And I did a quick sum. And th- and so did he. And he went, you're earning 20000 a year. This was 1988 and I was 21. And I realized this was a lot of money. Plus, there were, you know, there were you get all the expenses in. So early on, I did very, very nicely. There was a slightly fallow patch when it started to get a bit rocky. And then it just became very, very solid. Um, I've always been... I don't want to call myself a businessman, but I've always been quite good at the business side, negotiating fees, arguing for them, getting it up, being stroppy if someone says, I'll pay you a kill fee. My my line with that was, there is no such thing as a kill fee. You have a choice. You pay me the full fee, and I'll write for you again. Or you pay me the full fee and never commission me again. But if you pay me a kill fee, I will never write for you again. Um, And it's, it was simple as that, and I held the line on it. Um, I didn't take kill fees. But... It- or if they did, they would never hear from me again. And so it all, it all sort of worked out. Um, and then the email on Sunday happened, and that was very nice money. And at that point, I started putting radio on and books. Um, these days, do you want it from this from the modern perspective? My Observer contract is roughly a third of my income, or the income into J. Rayner Limited. I have a company, which back in the day was a classic private service company but now functions as a proper company because of the production work that I do so I'd say a third of it is that um, radio podcasts and television is probably about a quarter Uh, live performance mostly my one man shows is at least a quarter Um, and then you get to corporate work books when they come along. I might not have made up 100% here, but it's it, it's a very, very mixed economy now. Um, and as I say, when I'm putting together a one-man show, I'll be investing quite significant amounts in that. When I'm gigging as a jazz musician, I'm responsible for paying the musicians and sorting all that stuff out. So the, the, the company turnover is not the same as what I actually earn. I won't invade my own privacy totally.
1: And do you think, again, we're not, we're not going to mm. linger on the money question, but, you know, compared... To that, that cohort of people coming through, of Dan Kona and these journalists, mm. do you now make a lot more than the people who are in staff jobs on newspapers?
2: It's a very interesting question. Well, yes. I mean, if, if I compare myself to people who have solely been in staff jobs, like staff editors, then yes, I do. Um... But then I have no security whatsoever, so uh, and uh, and I'm making it myself. So uh, probably, if you look at that executive class, you know the people who edit the Observer magazine or the staff feature writer or so forth, who has nothing else outside, then yeah, I did. Hurrah for me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, to come back to the early, well, mid '90s. Yeah. How did the Marble Kiss come about? Why?
2: What made you? I like a woman who's fiction? done a research. <laughs> I didn't intend to do fiction. I really didn't. Um, I had some friends who were young go-getters in the publishing industry. They were close, and and we were all sort of making it. They said, you should write a novel. And I thought, I I don't have any ideas for novels, and why should I? I'm a a journalist. That's what I should do. They they said, well, you should write nonfiction. But then what happened was, um, in a big stack of newspapers that I bought in Old Compton Street, I picked up a copy of the art newspaper, and there was a fantastic story in there about an art history di- dispute in Florence. Um, a, an art restorer had restored a Renaissance sculpture. Uh, an American art historian had accused him of ruining it. The art historian, uh, restorer had taken the historian to court, charged him with criminal libel. Uh, and um, I took this and I ran with it completely um I think it was my second cover of Week in Guardian ran under the uh title Restoration Comedy because I wrote the headline it was about 5,000 words long I spent a week in Florence and it was a cracking tale but I remember walking around with the little press pack there was someone from the New York Times there and a viewer a couple of other people and I said you know this has the makings of a terrible English novel And I just thought about it, kept thinking about it, and went home and wrote two chapters, partly set in the present day, about a war correspondent who has been demoted down because of something terrible that happened in the field to writing soft features. Um, And he's been sent to cover this piece of shit story about art history, and set in the 15th century, because obviously I'm 26 years old, and why the hell shouldn't I be ridiculously ambitious, telling the story of the woman the sculpture has been made of. Um, so And that's how I, I submitted those two chapters to I had an agent by then And it got bought A two book contract Sadly the second book was never published But that was the first book Got nominated for an award Sold almost no copies And got two nice reviews
1: Were you conscious of the the lineage of novels about journalism a Scoop towards the end of mm. the morning Because there aren't that many right? There aren't
2: that many good ones And I, I saw so I, You know the old thing Write what you know I did temper with Write What You Don't Know, which is the 15th century and the Renaissance. So I was very conscious, but trying to make it... I mean, the opening, I'm, I'm, I'm still embarrassed about the opening to that book. I probably was within a year. Um, I'm not even going to tell you what it was. If you ever managed to find a, a copy, you can read the opening um, and you'll, you'll basically read a, a young writer trying too hard.
0: A message from our sponsor, the Faber Academy Creative Writing School.
1: Everyone has a novel in them, or so the saying goes, but not everyone knows where to begin. The Getting Started Beginners Fiction course at the Faber Academy will teach you everything you need to call yourself a writer.
0: By studying stimulus texts and completing exercises, you will gain an understanding of all the important elements of storytelling. The course offers advice on good writing habits, turning ideas into stories, and engaging readers. You will receive constructive and rigorous feedback on your writing throughout.
1: There are three versions of the Getting Started Beginners Fiction course. The evening class and the day class consist of 12 two-hour sessions hosted at Faber's headquarters in Bloomsbury, London.
0: The online class, meanwhile, offers eight weeks of learning and support to be completed at your own pace. Places for all of these courses to commence in April are still available.
1: Always Take Notes listeners can receive a 10% discount by using the code AlwaysTakeNotes TAKE NOTES2020. To book go to faberacademy.co.uk Can we talk as well about the the second piece you sent so this piece uh, on theatre on the absence of right-wing theatre from from 2007 Uh, you know how do you feel about that now so that
2: piece happened directly because of the then editor of The Observer who was Roger Alton this man who I worked for all the way through for 20 years Roger would come to me and say, "Why not I fucking run a theatre. I go, "I don't know, Roger. I'm working on something else." But he kept on at it, and eventually, I said, "Look, Roger, if you really want me to do this, I will, but you've got to give me proper time. This is a huge subject. Give me six weeks, which in my mind has always been the length of time you needed for a proper feature." Um, and just for background, I my dissertation at university had been on British political theatre 1956-68. He knew this. He knew that I had an interest in theatre and that I went quite a lot. Um, And I did take it on as a a massive task. The point being, 2007 was the high point of Blair. Uh, By that point, it it felt like we were all new labour now. We were all the liberal establishment and um, why weren't we getting messages from elsewhere? And I reported that in incredible detail. I went to the theatre a lot. I went to Newcastle to see a show. I was at the National. I was something else. I, I went off to interview Michael Billington. I interviewed Heitner. I interv- yeah. I, I mean, it
0: seems like you spoke to most of the British <laughs> I <spoke> <laughs> <most>, theatre establishment. <laughs> I spoke to most
2: of the British theatre establishment. Um, and you asked me for three pieces, and I put that one in because in some ways it felt to me like a high watermark of that kind of feature writing where you really get down in it um, and go for it as hard as you possibly can. Um, it was exhausting and worrying. Um, that if there's you know one part of the world that n- has views, it's the theatre world. And I was about to
1: hold, hold judgment on them. Um, one thing I thought interesting reading that, and we were speaking off air about the differences between American magazine writing and British writing mm. traditions. Were you tempted writing that to to bring in more kind of scene-led stuff? You know, to Absolutely have, not. You know, to have like, you know, drop here's colour. the theatre, yeah, drop lead, like, you know, that sort of thing. Was no.
2: That... I am... Uh, uh, American journalism has many, many virtues, but its greatest vice is the colour drop intro. The six paragraphs of the journalist limbering up and trying to catch the attention of whichever literary agent and publisher is passing, so they come and say, don't you think you should come and write the great American novel? No, fuck off um get in get in there and start tell me what this piece is about Uh, i think it does start with a slight drop intro but it's very very slight i'm deeply suspicious of them um there better be a really bloody good reason for doing it and it's actually got to be germane to the story not because you're clearing your throat um and purple prose is not look nobody has to read a single thing you write as a writer be a journalist, or a, a novelist, or a writer of nonfiction. your job is to keep the reader writing. this so if you fail in that, you've failed completely. I mean, I, I suppose the only people who have to read something you've written are academics. But even then, you know, my other half is an academic publisher, I can tell you that it's not completely compelling. And the colour drop intro is, um, is a vice. It's not a virtue. They're usually not done very well, and they're a distraction, a very rarely read one, which... Makes me think, oh, well, that was worth doing that way. There's a, there's a particular model, and you'll see this so many times. Um, the whip cracks. The horse's hooves grind against the ground. Uh, the crowd cheers and the smell of dung. <laughs> welcome to the world of rodeo. It's, they go through a whole color drop and they get to the welcome to the world thing. There are so many of that. Have you ever done welcome
1: to the world of? I think I have to defend myself here. Um, have you? I have not. But, but what I, I, would suggest, I, have. I would suggest that there's a, there's a character distinction here. between I agree with you that done badly, like the drop lead is, is lazy and poor. But I think that the distinction is it doesn't work as a snapshot. It does work as a movie scene, right? And, and so I think that there, it's a basic narrative <laughs> convention. So if you look at, say, that I, I rewatched the movie Rush a few weeks ago, yeah. right? Yeah. It starts with a drop lead, right? It is like you are in the middle. Do you know where that here. is? Because it's a film.
2: Yes. <laughs> it is not a piece of journalism. I am One of the other things I teach when I, when I teach my class is whatever you do, think about your first sentence or first couple of sentences, not just because you need to grab the reader, but you do, but also because if you can work out what those first few sentences are, you have worked out what the piece is about. And if you've worked out what the piece is about, you're going to be a lot clearer for the, for the reader don't you dare start with a quote from someone uh that is the laziest thing i i i used to have this whole metaphor about you know go beginning a piece is like trying to get into a house you can go through the back door you can climb through the window into the or you can do the thing you're meant to do which is go through the front door find the front door and go through it and your job is to find that front door and that's uh uh Is that a metaphor and an analogy? I always get confused between the two. But whichever one it is, I've just overextended it.
0: (laughs) So that's when you're writing a piece, a column, whatever, the opening sentences, the opening paragraph are the thing that you'll give the most attention to.
2: Well, I like to think I give attention to the whole piece. Yes. But um, I am very, very serious about the Mm. opening. And you know, I I think what what is it that I'm writing? So I've just I'm literally I'm in the middle of writing a review at dinner in Newcastle on Saturday night. Uh by the time this drops probably it'll have appeared. It's a game restaurant, um, which is unusual because it's in a suburban setting. Uh it's from a chef who uh started emailing me two years ago, trying to catch my attention. Um and eventually you know, I realised that the opening line to this was Max Scott always gets his target in the end. It's not just the pheasant and the partridge who serves in the restaurant. In this case, it's also me. Now I know what this piece is about. It's about a game restaurant. I'm not claiming this is Wolfian. I'm not claiming this is, you know, one has to be careful when you're talking about what you do, but because it makes it sound like you think you're God.
0: Well, I guess this comes back as well to the, the thing about it being the story. If mm. you can tell the story from the... Yeah,
2: from, yeah. And, and if you can tell what the story is from the first sentence, then you're away. At some point, you are going to stop and say, they served me this, they served me that. It was nice, it wasn't nice. You're going to find interesting ways to say that, and I can I can natter on about that for a while. Um, but you, you need to make it feel like a whole, which is why I rarely do a drop colour. I did sort of do one couple of weeks ago, on a review from Berry St. Edmunds. I Can think. we just use this stage to
1: segue to food? Because we're now sort of at the writing about food. Thing. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, you know, how, how, how you and why? Beca- yeah, how you became a restaurant reviewer, and then, you know, how, how the game works. What are the rules? How's it played? The mechanics of it? That kind all of thing. All right. So, uh, our Mail
2: on Sunday went on till 96. Then Jocelyn Wunderkind is taken back to The Observer to be deputy editor, and he takes us all home. I return to The Observer as a general feature writer and news feature writer was getting newsier and newsier i was doing a lot on the front and all of that sort of stuff but also in fact i was doing everything i wrote across the paper business you know it uh i was also the news focus writer which was a tough job on a sunday um you'd be charged you know tasked on a wednesday to turn around two and a half thousand words of closely live reported stuff uh written through colorful readable by the end of friday um and i was pretty exhausted and then I went out for lunch with the editor of the Observer magazine, who I'd done some stuff for, and she she announced that the TV critic was moving on, Kate, F- uh, uh, restaurant critic. She announced that the restaurant critic, Kate Flett was moving on. And I, in that second, said, well, that's a job you can't apply for, but I'd be good at it. I liked restaurants. I spent my own money on them. I went to them. I read other restaurant reviews. Um... And that is the moment when it occurred to me. I did not have an ambition to be a restaurant critic. I never planned to. uh, But the idea of a specialism had started dawning upon me. Um, And I reckoned that was what I needed to do. Roger Olsen didn't want me to be the restaurant critic because he liked having me as a news focus writer. He said, if you start writing about food, you'll disappear into it. And he was right. Um, The editor of the magazine, Cheryl Garrett, said, I've got good news, bad news, which is that she wanted me to do it. He didn't. Uh, he wanted Andrew Rawnsley to do it, because he took a lot of people to lunch. Um, <laughs> there was only one problem with this, which was Rawnsley didn't want to do it. Uh, eventually, it was agreed we would double up um, and, you know, alternate. Awful idea in all columns. Uh, he did one, I did ten. He did another one, I did another ten. He went on to battle to write Servants of the People, his big Blair book, and I stayed there. And at the end of that first year, I was shortlisted for the Glenfiddich Food and Drink Awards restaurant critic. And I'm telling you that not because, go me, but because the brilliant thing about journalism awards is it makes it hard for them to sack you. I'm a big believer in a nomination. Newspapers can't sack you if you've had a nomination in the previous year. And happily, I've managed to keep my job. Um, When I look back on it, those first two years were outrageous because I didn't know very much. I thought I did, but I didn't. I I said some terrible things about, you know, how food worked, misidentified ingredients, misidentified cooking techniques. (laughs) Awful. But nobody really called me out on it. Um, And it seemed to get a bit of love. Um, And I imagined doing it for a few years. Anyway, that was 1999. And
0: here I still am. I noticed that the... Year before you had published, sorry, I seem to have done extensive research. Into no, no, I like, I like research, research <laughs> is brilliant. <laughs> um, but Day of Atonement
2: was a very foody book,
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: I, um, I, I, when I look back on it, there are certain things so
0: serendipitous, basically. Or had it been, had you been kind of mooting it? I,
2: well, you know, the brilliant thing about hindsight is it plays, it plays time forward, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Um. In retrospect, it all looks like it was set to happen because Day of Atonement is the story of two Jewish boys who create a, start making implements for the kitchen, create a, an implement shop, go on to make cafes, their restaurants and hotels. Uh, and it really was about the restaurant business um, and food. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 you know, if you look at all that, it does seem like I was limbering up. Maybe I was, but honestly, it hadn't occurred to me. So when those people write to me saying, I like food, I like your job, you think... <laughs> There is no career structure for this. There's more of a career structure to be Prime Minister of the UK than there is for what I'm doing.
1: Um, there's very, very few of us. So how does it work on a weekly basis? How is it determined which restaurants are reviewed? Do you have to don a disguise? Like how does do Simon, look at me. <laughs> how do I disguise this? All right. But the New York Times people do that,
2: don't no, they? No, no. I mean, Carl, um, what's his name? Frank Bruni clearly did for a bit, but I think he was just probably bored. Uh, Ruth Reichel um, did once go to a restaurant disguised as her own dead mother, but uh, to see whether the Cirque treated the little old lady differently to herself, which, of course, it did. But we we can talk about the difference between the the American way and the British way in a moment. Um, I review one restaurant a week. They need to be a mixture of location, food style, price point, Um, uh, but most of all, they need to be interesting. So when I'm looking for what I'm going to review next, I'm asking myself that question, what's the story here? Will this be interesting? Is this worth my time? There are any number of gastro pubs in the UK serving exactly the same menu, uh, and they do it all very well. But God knows what, how I'd get 1,100 words out of that. So my first question is, what's the story here, and can I keep this mixed? I had quite a block of London over the summer, but since then I've been all over the place um and it, it's about keeping it interesting the, the bottom line i'm not selling restaurants i'm selling newspapers or the digital equivalent thereof nobody as i've said by right the beginning reads me to find out whether the lamb was overcooked they're looking for the story and i've got to find the story so i am looking at press releases i'm looking at blog posts i'm looking at twitter if i'm going to a town that i haven't been to before i'll be searching left right and center to try and see if there is something which is worthy of my attention um, I go, I book under a pseudonym, they don't know I'm coming, I turn up, I order food, I now photograph all the dishes myself because I've recently taken to posting my pictures on Instagram on a Sunday to be compared with the ones that we then, once, I, once I've once i left, I send a list of the dishes to the picture editor and uh, she arranges for a photographer to come in and take photographs of that food. Um, I file my copy, to, uh, Well, at the moment, quite a way ahead, but maybe 12 days ahead, roughly two weeks ahead of each review. Uh, that's it. Unless that doesn't sound mysterious (laughs) enough. I mean, you know, often uh, at times I've had TV companies say, we'd love to do a day in the life of Jay Rayner. And I say, well, that's very flattering, but you'll mostly see a sizable man sitting on his sizable ass, you know, trying to read the whole of the internet as a distraction from doing the thing he's meant to do. And then maybe I go for lunch. Yeah, but what happens then? Well, it's, it's not like there's a spectrometer lowered from the ceiling to look at the colour of the carrots. It's, it's just a man <laughs> having lunch and maybe taking food off his companion's plate without asking.
0: When you reviewed recently the Carvery chain,
2: not Carvery, uh, Miller Miller uh, and Carter's Steakhouse chain, yes. chain. Yeah, um, yeah.
0: What was the um what were you, what was the story you were looking for behind that?
2: It's very simple. They are the biggest seller of steaks in the country. And while, you know, it's interesting to find the great steakhouse, is it not slightly more interesting to find the place that more people in this country will be eating steak than anywhere else? What are they like? Are they shit? Are they good? Is, it, is this terrible in every single way? Are we snobs and think this is all awful? Well, there's only one way to go and find out, which is go. I had been planning to do a Miller and Carter for a very long time. Um, but that'd always been a better option, if I'm honest. And then I found myself in Liverpool, um, and I mean, this is a reasonable explanation of how things work. Um, there were a bunch of choices, but either I'd already reviewed them, Grace Dent had already reviewed, because we don't uh, cross over on the Guardian, or they weren't open at lunchtime, which was when I was available. There were three or four interesting places to come, but none of them had already opened. They were about to open in about four weeks' time, which meant I had a gap. Every single thing I looked at, just went no. And I thought, right, well, this is the point. There's a Miller and Carter in Liverpool. Do that because you know that's going to be a good piece. And I kind of needed to be in a situation to justify it because it was a it's an outlier,
1: but an outlier is fine because it's you know it's a good story. What is the the US UK distinction that you alluded right. to earlier?
2: So, uh, obviously, I have quite a sizable U.S. readership. Uh, And also, I've worked in the U.S. quite a lot. I've done some of the big food TV shows over there. And I have written in the past for Gourmet and Food and Wine and all that. Um, The key distinction is this. Most American cities, at least until now, it's a a bit different now, but are one newspaper cities. It's the New York Times, the San Francisco Chronicle, Chicago Tribune. And if you are one, city, one newspaper city, your newspaper is generally or was very profitable and you can afford to have your restaurant critic do nothing but that and go three to five times. What's more, you could argue that because that's the only voice, that's what they need to do. Um, and then they go off and they write, they're very precious. We've been three to five times and analysed it all. In the UK, there are six, seven, nine of us. Um, and you will get all those differing opinions on the restaurants. Plus, we do not have the resources to go all the time. Now, I I would also say, how many times do you need to go to a shit restaurant to know that it's shit? Um, the consumer doesn't. And I think given the cost of meals and eating out now, um, the I've been once thing is absolutely fine and justified. Uh, I've often said that American journalism is often more accurate, but British journalism can be more true. That you can bland out and kill the real flavor of writing through the American process. I've been asked repeatedly to write for certain American mags. I've stopped doing it now because they claim they love my writing, but they don't want it. You, you I, I file my voice, which is, like most British writing, scabrous, salacious occasionally a bit obscene uh, in your face jaunty and all of that stuff um and american editors don't want it they think they do but they don't and then they go well we just have to take that bit out and we'll just take that bit out and we'll just take that bit out um and so uh I, 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 there is some very very good obviously american food writing i think it's interesting that the um the best american food writing has come out of published books by which i mean tony bourdain and Kitchen Confidential, which was a totally different voice, and I don't think that would ever have been published off the bat by either, although the New Yorker did eventually serialize it, I think they had to see it in book form to feel that it had the, you know, the authenticity. The other one is Jonathan Gold, the late, brilliant Jonathan Gold, and I think what's important about him was that he came out of the alternative press in Los Angeles. Um, and it was the LA Times found him and and he, he, he was a stroppy bastard who wouldn't have let the LA Times turn him into anything else He was LA Weekly long before he became LA Times um, But most of it You know if you look at I, I, I Don't really want to be rude about it, but it can be very precious. There's a lot of cooking with love in American food journalism uh, And it's slightly emetic We have our own problems with that here in the UK as well, but I I think we're a little more in your face.
0: Um, Your readers have enjoyed your negative reviews to the extent that they've collected them, they've been collected into a book.
2: Well, I collected them into a book.
0: (laughs) Did you enjoy writing them?
2: Okay, the first thing I have to say is that the negative reviews are the smallest part of any, any one year. They're fewer than a fifth. I don't go looking for them. Um, and what's more, you can't. Because if you do, it will stink to high heaven. If you're gonna, you have to hold your views properly if you're going to put them in there. Um, and I don't um, kick off on small independents. It's got to be, it's the big hyper-funded restaurants that I go for. The ones that think they're great
1: and aren't. But yeah, righteous anger. Righteous anger is a marvellous thing. Could you talk through like the the life you know the, the, the process of a pan? so I was thinking particularly your farm girl review that you have got this, this place in Chelsea yeah that you know at what stage you, you go in at what stage you like this is terrible like and then uh, usually and then, within about 3 minutes and then through to the reaction of the piece and the sort of broader karmic consequences of it. <laughs> how does it can you take us through that process um, do
2: you want to do farm girl or the really famous one which is le sank so uh, le sank was the review of the michelin 3 star And I went there expecting to write. I had to be in Paris anyway. A friend said, you haven't reviewed a big Michelin three star in a very long time. And I hadn't. And people below the line on the Observer were um, banging on about price all the time. And I thought, I'll let them see what it really could be. Because I knew how much these places could cost. But the table um, went. And it was appalling from pretty much the get-go. Uh, the point when they it had been booked by my female companion they gave her the menu without the prices and it goes downhill from there Um, and I I, I kept waiting for that moment of glory and it kept never happening and about halfway in it was late on that one I concluded I knew what I was going to do Um, and it didn't get any better and as I walked down I, I, I eventually wrote about this in the introduction to one of the collections that I knew as I walked down the steps what I was going to do. And I knew it was going to have an impact. And if I claimed otherwise, that would be a lie. And I really did feel, I I was appalled. It was just staggering that this kind of crap was being served up at 300 euros a head or more. Um, But my view was that if you're going to do it, you better own it. Um, I certainly felt that I had more than enough justification for it. Uh, the point where I thought, well, this is getting interesting was, as I mentioned, we send a list of dishes to the, to the picture editor, and the picture editor sends a photographer. They refuse to let our photographer in. Uh, they said, our dishes are too expensive. We will not make them to be photographed. We'll send you our, P- our pictures. So then I get to see the proof of my page every week, and it comes in, and there is this glittering amber city on the hill, which is a, a an onion gratin dish. And I call them up, and I say, but you've got to see the picture I've got on my phone. And we have a long discussion about this. And we agree that actually we have to run with theirs because anything else is going to look actively vindictive. So I say, well, look, okay, I'll put it on my website then. And I prepare a post. And I do remember I put a message on my Facebook page. My Facebook page is very closed, very private. It's only other journalists. It's friends. And everybody knows you cannot put anything from there elsewhere. And the message simply said that quiet, calm, when you know all shit, all hell is going to break loose the next morning. I knew what was going to happen. I will admit, I don't think I quite anticipated the sheer volume. Because a good review of mine gets 150 to 200,000 page views. Standard is 110. Um, as within five days, it was at 1.8 million and is now at nearly 3 million. Um, The moment I knew this was quite something was we had a link coming off my actually I think I put it in the comments. Um, I put a comment right at the top in the comment section saying if you want to see my pictures go over here. And I got a call from the editor of the magazine saying Kath Viner the editor of the whole Guardian who usually paid no attention whatsoever wants your pictures on the website. And so we recast that whole post that was on my website onto the page. And I thought, wow, something here is going on. And then it just spiraled. Um, Headlines all over the world. The French hated me. The rest of the world quite liked me. Karmically. I mean, this is, being absolutely honest, uh, it's done my career an awful lot of good. (laughs) Genuinely, certain, certain nice gigs have come my way from bits of Europe I would never have expected. I ended up, advertising a supermarket in Finland. A gig I took only because, I, you know, having checked out the supermarket, it was kind of a Whole Foods-type quality supermarket. They made it absolutely clear. It was based on that. It was a funny script. It was, you know, we brought Europe's scariest food critic. And I go all the way around, and I go, I'm not entirely disappointed. And I thought this was funny. Um, various gigs like that. So um, there is, in some pockets, some... View of me as a ridiculous barbarian because how can a Michelin three star be shit and how dare an Englishman say this? Uh,
1: but yeah, all in all, pretty positive. You just couldn't know what you're doing. Brilliant. Well, look, that seems a, a very good place to to wrap this up. Thank you for being such a uh, fantastic and candid guest, and um, <laughs> wishing you all the best with um, your work going forward. Yeah, well, I hope I, I, it'd be
2: nice if I've still got a career after this.
0: Hello. It's us again, Simon, what did you make of that
1: interview? It was a fascinating afternoon shay J uh, <laughs> at a undisclosed location in south London, um yeah. clearly a huge character. he sort of held court while we occasionally interjected questions, but yeah, really interesting on on you know both his his rise to power as it were, but also what <laughs> the sort of the, the, the code of the food writer is, you know that it's yeah, fine to like up. yeah punching up, not punching down. What did you think?
0: Yeah. I really enjoyed it um, i that's my style of interview where I just occasionally pipe in and someone else is that witty and entertaining um, I was fascinated by his approach to finding stories in the early days, combing through newspapers and magazines and seeing, you know, looking for something that no one else had bothered to report on properly I thought that was Really interesting.
1: Diligence definitely pays off. Um, As ever, we're under strict orders uh, to indicate who we've got coming up on the show in future. So who are our next episodes?
0: Next up is Lisa Tadeo, the author of Three Women. And then we have Giles Hattersey, who is the Features Director at British Vogue.
1: So a lot to look forward to there. This has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Acombe.
0: And me, Rachel Lloyd.
1: Our producer is Nicola Keane. Our social media editor is Owen Redahan. Our graphic design is by James Edgar and our score is by Jess Danheiser.
0: If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes and on Twitter at Take Notes Always.
1: And if you'd like to support the podcast financially, we're on Patreon at Always Take Notes. Many thanks.
0: Goodbye.